0: Welcome to a special interview edition of Slate Money with Scott Cooper, who's here with me in Brooklyn. Welcome. Thank you. You have a new book out called...
1: Secrets of Sand Hill Road.
0: Which is about venture capital, and we have a long and fascinating conversation, especially if you are... Interested in this whole venture capital industry? We are going to talk about how companies are funded and why VCs insist on board seats for their general partners and why they insist on this crazy stuff called preferred stock and whether you should even accept cash from them at all. Which, apparently, according to Scott, there is some reason somewhere. He'll <laughs> he'll hold your hand and he will um, sprinkle magical pixie dust exactly. on you. Right. So it's going to be a um, fun conversation. It's going to be a fun conversation, and all of that is coming up on Slate Money Extra. Scott Cooper, welcome to Slate Money. Thank you. You have a book. It is called *The Secrets of Sandhill Road*. Sandhill Road is a very boring road it is. in it Palo Alto. Is. I had no idea it could have secrets, <laughs> but apparently it has secrets behind the low-slung beige buildings along Sandhill Road. That's exactly right. Live, um,
1: you would be very disappointed. Anybody who would come out to Sandhill right, people. Yeah
0: who apparently control billions of dollars. Right. And you have a statistic here in this book which says that if you look at the US stock market 63% of the market capitalization of the stock market comes from companies which were founded or funded by venture capitalists, which is kind of huge.
1: It's amazing, yeah. This is a Stanford study that they've put out and uh I haven't verified the numbers <laughs> myself, but I'll assume I'll assume that they uh, did it correctly. But it is remarkable and that's a little bit of what I talk about in the book is this is a business that if you look at the actual dollars invested, it's tiny, right? I mean, you know, kind of last year was a big year for venture. We, you know, we invested something like $80, $100 billion into startups. But if you compare that to hedge funds, you compare it to the public stock equities, it's, it's nothing. But it kind of punches above its weight in the sense that it does have an outsized impact on the economy.
0: Insofar as you're like giving VC the credit for all of these amazing things. Oh, yeah. And
1: and, and yes, I think that's a very fair point. And and I I, I think I've made it clear in this book, which is look, the VCs are not responsible for that. The VCs were a funding source to help enable entrepreneurs to do that. But there's no question that, look, the heavy lifting and the hard work gets done by entrepreneurs. So I don't want to, I don't think the VC community should take credit for that. I would just say VC dollars, despite being small, actually can have an outsized impact on job creation on r&d development and other things like that.
0: And the other thing you you talk about a little bit in the book is that although total vc dollars are you know up by sort of historical standards okay. right now we are at a point in history where like we've companies have never been so uncash constrained. Like there's it's not like companies are desperate for cash and you know, there's like one or two sources of VC funding. And if they don't get one of those sources of VC funding, then they're doomed. Like it's the other way around. Like there's a lot of VC capital and other like investor capital chasing these opportunities right now. Yeah,
1: I think that's right. I think that's one of the biggest things that's kind of, you know, changed over the last probably 10 years or 10 to 15 years, which is you're right. It used to be the case that the VCs existed because they were the ones who had the money. And therefore, obviously, you know, the entrepreneurs said, hey, you've got the money. We want it. Let's go, you know, find a way to work together. It's completely flipped now, right? Which is there's, you know, tremendous amount of kind of traditional VC money out there. But then there's also we've got mutual funds and hedge funds and soft banks and all kinds of other places. We've had seed capital, right, which never used to exist in the kind of institutional way that it does today. So, yeah, I agree. The competition dynamic has changed, which is the VCs need to actually go sell themselves to the entrepreneurs now as opposed to the other way around.
0: Right. And so basically the book is about this interesting tension between entrepreneurs and VCs and how they sort of negotiate with each other and, you know, the various tensions that can exist between them and whether it's even a good idea for an entrepreneur to, to raise VC funding. And I want to get into to some of that because maybe unsurprisingly, it seems to me that you're a little bit like, you know, tilted towards the VC side of things. <laughs> but let's start with the funding part. When yeah, a sure. VC like funds a company initially you quote your your colleague chris dixon saying that vcs invest in good ideas that look like bad ideas yeah and I'm, oh that's a great thing they're so contrarian <laughs> they, they they have to be smart when everyone else is stupid but then i was thinking about it. i'm like you look at the big wins right you look at google or facebook or apple like did they really look like bad ideas when they were being funded by vcs
1: yeah so It's not necessarily – I'm going to answer your question, so I'm not avoiding your question. It's not necessarily (laughs) that you're contrarian. It's that you're looking for things that may not be completely obvious. So what, to me, was contrarian about Facebook and Google is neither of them were the first in their categories, right? And Google was, I don't know, search engine number 34 or 35 or something like that. Uh, Obviously, things existed before Facebook, like Friendster and other stuff like that. So the idea – you know, if you talk to VCs at the time of Google, a bunch of VCs passed on it because they said, look – how can anybody possibly – there's 34 of these other companies out there. Why would anybody actually ever invest in other search engines? So I think the what I mean by that comment, I think what Chris Dixon mean when he said it is there's kind of good ideas that are good ideas, right? And those are just obvious, and probably it's hard to make money on them. And then there's bad ideas that are bad ideas, and hopefully we avoid those. But it's that kind of small window of kind of outliers that – you know, they might work, they might not work, but if they work, you think they have uncapped upside and you can at least convince yourself that there's some theory why they might work. But that might be not necessarily contrarian, but that might not be an obvious theory, it might not be a popular theory, but you found something else that makes you decide you want to make that bet. That, I think, is kind of the the trick of what we're trying to do.
0: And so the sort of classical idea of a good idea that looks like a bad idea is, I don't know, Uber or something, where no one could, like, really see how big and dominant it might become. But then equally... As you say, like something like Google, it's not that it looked like a bad idea. It just looked like there were already 14 search engines yeah. and why does the world need a 15? There were,
1: there were a bunch of them. None of them had figured out a monetization model, right? And so, you know, kind of, but, you know, I give a lot of credit to the VCs who ended up backing Google. Unfortunately, that was before our time. But, you know, they, they somehow got themselves comfortable that, okay, it's not too crowded of a space, that the market does actually exist. And that even though we don't yet know what the monetization model is, that we're backing smart people who... If they actually can, you know, kind of uh, figure out a way to kind of create an audience uh, attraction to this, they will find some way to monetize that audience.
0: And then the successful companies, at least, often have many rounds of of capital. And often as even in the early rounds, if it's like a previous entrepreneur who did well or certainly in the later rounds, if the company is doing well. Um, there can be quite a lot of competition to get into these rounds. Right. And at one point you talk about the winner's curse, which is, I'm, I'm super into this idea of like if you win one of those competitions, then you've probably lost. But what's your <laughs> what's your idea of the winner's curse? Because I also have this idea that in venture capital nowadays, there's so much emphasis on the kind of self-fulfilling prophecy part of things that like if you put in a lot of money, that itself will cause a win. So does it really exist?
1: I, I think it's still does exist so who was that i think it was Roddy dangerfeld right who said you know i don't want to be a part of any club that would admit me or or maybe that was actually maybe because may, may have been groucho Marsh, right exactly all right i've got my uh comedians mixed up yeah so i think winner's curse does it still exist which is when we invest in a company, there is a set of companies, at least that you're right. There's competition for them. They're perceived as hot, and you know, hot is often you know a euphemism for what we think will be good and successful companies. But that's not necessarily always the case, right? So we certainly look. We make mistakes all the time, and in fact, you know, as we talk about in the book, we probably you know probably half of what we do, we lose all of our money. So I think the the winner's curse challenge here is potentially looking at something that looks like a bright and shiny object, but you haven't actually done the work to realize that, you know, kind of there may not ultimately be a a business here. But that's
0: like, even if you invested in that company at, you know, a third of the valuation, it would still have been a mistake. That's exactly right. um, My idea of the winner's curse is basically if you have 20 different people all bidding on the same object and they all bid what they think it's worth and the highest bid wins, then basically the one in 20 outlier who has completely got it wrong and has bid way too much winds up winning the auction.
1: I understand what you're saying now. Yes. So I agree with you, uh, which is it's not I don't view the winner's curse in that sense, which is that too many people bid on it. Therefore, the price gets too high and therefore it doesn't make sense. Now, that that can happen sometimes. But the reality is at an early stage, you know, look, if we're going to pay 30 million dollars and we have to pay 40 or 50 million dollars, the investment case we're making for that 30 or 40 or 50 million dollars valuation is a chance to get a multi-billion dollar outcome, right? And so, of course, we'd always rather, not surprisingly, pay less money rather than more for companies. But it's probably unlikely at the early stage that if you really like the company at a $30 million valuation, you're probably still going to like it at a $40 million valuation. Now, there is some limit, obviously, to where you say, hey, is there
0: there a winner's curse at like late-stage Uber financing? Yeah, I
1: think that's right. I think, yes. There are winner's curses there. Where So the two, I think, places for winner's curse are late-stage financing leading into an IPO, right, because you have this, you know, you have a different set of investors who are going to benchmark these companies differently. And then the equivalent of that, which is the second one in the private markets, is the next-round financer, right? So the biggest thing we worry about, if we invest in, let's just pick a, a stage, a Series C company, the biggest thing we worry about is who and will there be money there for the Series D financing? And so if we pay too much, then we increase the bar that the company has to overcome in terms of the hurdle rate they need to get to, which means there may not be a Series D investor who comes alongside there. So that's right. the other, so I this think Winner's Curse matters this is one
0: there. of the, the big questions I have. One of the yeah. themes which runs through the book is this, like, terror of the down round. And, like, <laughs> even when you're ra- raising your Series C, you have to be terrified that you might be forced to do a down round in Series D, and that would be the end of the world, and we should all just, like, basically rather, you know lose a limb then risk such a thing <laughs> why is why is a down round so bad and what is a down round
1: yeah, OK. So a down round is exactly as it sounds, which is it's a round where the valuation is lower at this round than it was at the prior valuation, as opposed to an up round, right, where we hope the valuation just monotonically increases over time with the company.
0: And just to be clear here, is it is it around where the valuation is down or is it just around where the share price is down?
1: So ultimately, the share price really is what really matters from an economics perspective. But, you know, sometimes people can fudge fudge share prices and valuations and, and make that make sense. But, okay. but think of it as, let's give the simple example. You invested at $10 a share. Now somebody comes in ten months later, a year later, at five dollars a share. That's a classic down round, right? So, and right. again,
0: and, wh- and why is that so? So, so it's, terrible. Uh,
1: yeah, I, I hope I didn't, uh, I didn't mean to terrorize people in the book here. But uh, <laughs> so, look, you can overcome this. There's no question. But if you think about how much of what you're doing in a startup is, how do I convince people that my vision for the future is? real and viable and that ultimately you should come quit your job here and work for me and go tell your spouse that, you know, you're going to take a lower salary in order to do that because you believe in the vision. And so the down round and financing routes in general are one external validation of at least whether the market believes you are on track or not on track to accomplish your objectives, right? So you've got your internal objectives, right? Like we ship a product and we hire people and we do stuff and we make sales numbers and that's all great. This is one kind of external validation that only happens probably every 12, 18, 24 months where it's a really hard thing to go back to your employees and you've been telling them all along, hey, we're doing great. We're making all of our milestones. But oh, by the way, I went out to the market and the market thinks, despite the fact we doubled our business, our valuation is actually worth half of what it was 18 months ago.
0: Except for like, I feel like public companies, you know, have that validation every second. And, you know, you you can be... Tesla or Netflix or Amazon or any one of these companies, which you know, has a massive, or Twitter for that matter, which has a massive amount of stock compensation and, and and employees who incentivize with stock. And their valuations can go down a lot. And no one finds a falling share price in those companies to be quite as terrible as you make it out to be in this book.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's probably less terrible, but I think that's partly because of what you said, which is you have a daily stock price, right? So there's at least a theory that tomorrow might be better, right? Or next week might be better, right? So look at Uber or Lyft, right? Obviously, you know, some of them haven't traded, you know, as well in the post-IPO timeframe, but there's always tomorrow. We get, you know, an update on the market yesterday, you get 500 points and all of a sudden the stocks are up 5% and life looks good again, right? So I think it's the fact that you've got this discontinuous nature of pricing, which is we get one report card every, let's just say 18 months when we raise money. And I don't get another chance to kind of tell that story again, probably for another 18 months. So my employees kind of are always at risk of perceiving that as, you know, hey, either you're not telling me the truth as a CEO and we're not actually doing as well as we think or your truth and the truth of the market validation just don't actually, you know, kind of line up. And I think that's hard. It's not it's not it's not the end of the world and people can survive it, but it's way easier to put yourself in a situation where you can kind of continue that you know everything lines up with the story you're telling them and one way to make the story line up is the kind of you know monotonically increasing share price and financings
0: the other thing which you seem very keen on in this book one of the many things actually you seem very keen on in this book is this idea that vcs have one shot at any given company in a sector so can you explain that to me like why can't vcs invest if i'm a public investment manager and I like the airline industry, I buy a whole bunch of airlines because I think airlines are awesome. Uh, But if you are Anderson Horowitz and you like ride sharing, you buy Lyft and you cannot buy Uber (laughs) if you do that. like, Why the difference?
1: yeah, so this is kind of the question of conflicts, right? So I think the reason there's a big difference between public versus private, in particular VC versus other public is effectively, you know, I use I, I won't I don't want to strain this analogy too much because I use it in the book, but you know, we're essentially getting married, right? At some point in time, right? And our brands are becoming intermingled, right? So when we invested in Lyft, you know, we are essentially saying, okay, you know, let's align our brands and, Success that Lyft has, you know, ultimately accrues to our benefit as an investor. And if Lyft doesn't do well, then people will say, hey, those Andreessen and Horowitz guys don't know what they're doing. And that has, you know, a tarnishing reputation for your brand. And so, It's very hard, I think, when you've got that close of a brand affiliation to think that then we could go invest in Uber because from a consumer's perspective, those are substitutional goods, right? So a consumer, you know, when you get in the car, you're either going to choose Lyft or Uber. And obviously, I hope you always choose Lyft. But you're competing for the same dollars at the end of the day. And I think it's very hard there, whereas, again, in the public context, look, if Fidelity owns Lyft and Uber, quite frankly, nobody believes that they are necessarily, you know, kind of aligning their brand with it. They're just making a pure financial decision. It may just be, hey, look, we have a thesis on ride-sharing, period. And we think there can be many successful companies. But there.
0: why can't you just align your brand with ride sharing and, and say, like, yeah, if Lyft does well, that's that reflects well on us. And if, if Uber well does well, that reflects well on us. And we've invested in both. I'm not quite sure why you need to be monogamous.
1: I think you have to be monogamous because, number one, you've got the brand relation. Two, right, in many cases, you're sitting on the board. And so you've got, you know, potentially accessed information that, you know, while there's ways to kind of manage conflicts inside of a firm, I think it gets more complicated and people worry that, hey, what if... Mark Andreessen talks to Ben Horowitz and they're on different boards. And do I worry about kind of leakage of information? But I think it's more importantly, which is so much of VC dollars is a signaling effect, right? So, you know, a reason to take VC dollars from some firm that has a strong brand, a strong reputation is that connotes to your success as an entrepreneur, right? So I'll use us. If I raise money from Andreessen Horowitz, then hopefully people say, people that you might be employing or customers you might be approaching say, hey, those in and Horowitz folks are smart. They've backed a lot of interesting companies. And so, therefore, you know, kind of some of that reputational value ought to rub off on me as an entrepreneur. And so I just think there's too tight of a coupling between the brands and the names that allows for that substitutional purpose.
0: I, f- I feel like there's enough reputation to, you to want go to around. I feel like,
1: Look, you know, I, I wish we could do it. Uh, maybe, maybe we're wrong. Maybe but we I mean, haven't but pushed me, it. But.
0: I mean, let me put it this way, right? So you – I mean, I can see the argument about conflicts. But you – Right now, obviously, in, in terms of the big tech giants, Facebook is one of the you know, four big ones. And you have a constant stream of of companies coming in saying we're young and hungry and we're going to disrupt Facebook. Right, and then right. here you have Marc Andreessen sitting on the board of Facebook. I right, mean, isn't right, right. that a much bigger conflict than anything?
1: Yeah, so I think uh, there's a little bit of this question of well, conflicts in the eye of the beholder to a certain extent, right? And so I think where we try to draw the line, it's not always obvious, is to say, hey, look, if you are literally going after the exact same dollars, the exact same buyers, and I'm gonna buy one and not the other, and therefore they are truly zero sum from a sales perspective. It's hard to make that argument that there's not some potential conflict there. So again, to me, Lyft and Uber is easy, but you know, there's lots of things. Look, we invest in enterprise applications. At some point in time, all enterprise applications compete for the budget dollars of, you know, a corporate enterprise, right? But that doesn't prevent us from investing in a marketing, you know, specific application versus a sales application and others. I think there's a distinction, you know, not saying the fact that Mark's on the board and obviously has a public affiliation with Facebook. He knows, and obviously Mark Zuckerberg knows, that, look, the nature of our business is we could invest in things that ultimately might be in conflict with Facebook. But because it's a public company and because we're talking about kind of, you know, private stuff and different time horizons, I think people at least accept that part of the conflict.
0: Is it normal for… Venture capitalists to be on public company boards? It seems a bit weird to me.
1: Yeah, you know, there's some precedent for it. So John Doerr, I think, was on the Amazon board for a long time. I believe, you know, Mike Peritz and some of the Sequoia partners. So, so I think the way we think about it is, if it is, you know, an important, iconic company where, again, kind of the value of being on that board, you know, accrues somewhat to us as a firm, then it makes sense to do it. But like, you know, if Mark wanted to go on the Boeing board, for example, I think that would be, uh, it'd be unlikely that we'd be able to argue that that has, you know, value accretion to the firm.
2: Apple card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
0: One of the things you say about when VCs invest is that, like, that's just the beginning of the marriage. And the hard work is really like after the investment, and you're you holding the entrepreneur's hands and giving them advice and introducing them to people and really adding all of this extra value that somehow you have access to little bags of magical pixie dust in, <laughs> on Sand Hill Road that no one else has access to. And that's why everyone should take VC money. But Whenever I see funding rounds, there are, you know, six or seven or eight different VCs in these rounds. They can't all be holding them. I mean, this entrepreneur, how many hands exactly does the entrepreneur right. have to be held? You know? Right.
1: <laughs> I think that's a really good question, yeah. So, as you probably know, at least obviously the convention with most of these financing rounds is there often is a lead investor. And then there are, of course, other, you know, as you, as you mentioned, kind of co-investors. So I want to comment on two things there. One is I don't want to in any way diminish the role of the entrepreneur. Like, as I said before, and I said it very clear in the book, like the VCs don't build these companies, right? We shouldn't kid ourselves at all. Everything we're doing here is to hopefully be a good cheerleader and a you know partner to entrepreneurs. So even the handholding is more of, hey, if we can be helpful and you can bounce ideas off us or – in the case of and in Horowitz, you know, we do have resources that can help on specific things, right? So if you're interested in customer relationships or interested in hiring a CFO, we've actually staffed people against those things. So I think those can be valuable, but we, it's a very and fine line. do you line.
0: do that whether or not you have a board seat?
1: General, yes. Yeah. So we almost always have a board seat. And then if we don't, though, but it's, you know, a material investment. So, you know, for example, if we do a $50,000 seed investment, obviously, we just don't have the ability to kind of resource all those things. And, you know, we don't do that, obviously, very often. But there are a few times where we might make a more substantive investment in the millions of dollars, but because of the board construction, the company may say, hey, look, we just can't make a board. Well, maybe table. you're
0: just not. I mean, I guess I'm saying like, even if you're not the lead, like, I don't know, like, for instance, yeah. uh, in my head, I, I might be wrong about this. You're an investor in Stripe. You're, you're never like a lead That's correct.
1: In That's correct. Yeah.
0: And so you know, would you be providing these kind of services to Stripe in the same way that you would be to a company where you're a lead investor? Yeah,
1: not in the same way. But, you know, if if Stripe wanted to engage, everything we do is kind of on, you know, the company is driving, whether they want to be involved. So there's not like a, we don't have an Andreessen Horowitz playbook where we say, great, welcome to the family, read this book. And oh, by the way, do what we say in that playbook, because that would just crush and kill all these companies and we'd basically, you know, be horrible as investors if we destroyed the entrepreneurial spirit that's there. So yes, we do have different levels of what I would call engagement with companies, like you mentioned with a Stripe versus you know, I don't know uh, what would be a good one, Databricks, where Ben's been on the board for a number of years, we're the major investor there. But a lot of that is driven also in part by the company, which is if they want help, we're there to help them. And, you know, it's our job ultimately just to manage resources internally.
0: And one of those resources that you, you mention, you say every time a GP takes on a new board seat, that investment decision has an opportunity cost in that it consumes one of a limited number yeah. of investments that she can make. That basically, you can't make another investment at that point at the margin because then that investment would require taking a board seat and there's a finite number of board seats that, you know, a single GP can hold. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, sitting on a board is a serious amount of work and you can't sit on too many. Yeah, Can you explain to me why does the GP need to be the person on the board? I mean, yeah. Andreessen Horowitz has a gazillion employees. Like why can't you put, or, or it has lawyers. Like you have a whole bunch of people. Why <laughs> Why does it need to be that particular individual who sits on the board? Yeah,
1: that's, a good, that's a good point. So we made the decision, and by the way, other venture firms do, do it differently. So yeah, uh, there are certainly other models that make sense. Our view is that we think that the way we define a general partner, I should just say, the way we define general partner in our firm is you can write a check and you can sit on a board. And, You know, we think implicit in the brand promise of what we're trying to bring to entrepreneurs is to say, Hey, look, we're not gonna put somebody on the board who hasn't kind of been through enough cycles who can't be valuable as a board member. It's not a train we don't view it as like, look, this is a training ground for people to be on your board. We we take that experience very seriously. And so even, for example, if we have a new GP who comes on board, on our board, and, you know, as they're getting up to speed, they will kind of partner with another GP who's been on more boards and had more experience to make sure that, hey, they've basically got a, you know, a buddy system to be able to educate them on different issues that are happening. We do board training internally for our GPs when they join us to make sure that they've got a kind of common set of knowledge and understanding. And so we just, we take the concept of, of just being on the board very seriously because, The risk is, right, at the end of the day, the board's number one thing they can do is hire and fire the CEO, right? They can do lots of other stuff, but that's like, you know, the big thing they can do. And so you can imagine if you're a CEO and your board member speaks up in a board meeting and says, that's a stupid idea or why are you doing that or you should go left when you think you should go right you're going to take that pretty darn seriously, right? I mean, it's not just a passing comment from some random person who says that. And so we want to make sure that kind of because of the weight that the words of a GP carries, that at least we feel like before we turn somebody loose to go do that, we're comfortable that the advice they give will hopefully be good advice.
0: There are implications of this, though, for uh, a word which I looked up in the index and is not in there, which is diversity. Yes. Anderson Horowitz and most other VC companies, the general partners are very male and mostly white. And the size of the boards of these public companies is pretty small. And if you insist on having your general partner, who's almost certainly going to be a man, like be on the board, that really reduces the diversity of these boards. And if you look at the boards of VC-funded companies, they are way less diverse than the boards of public companies. And that's bad, right?
1: I agree. Totally agree with that. So, I agree with everything you said. The only place I disagree is, I think what we need to do is we need to solve the diversity problem at the GP level and more broadly, obviously, in the industry. I want to solve that problem, but I don't think we should compromise kind of the importance or the role of the board member. So, as you mentioned, look, we now have we have three female uh, GPs in our group out of uh, right now out of fifteen, so twenty percent, which is still you know low, but uh, you know quite frankly better than the the industry average. And I'm not suggesting that that's the end all be all, but at least we're making progress. The big thing that we had and the reason why, you know, we didn't have female diversity for a long time was we had this very hard criteria for being a general partner, which is we said you had to have been a founder or CEO of a company when we started the firm. And we we kept that for many, many years. And not surprisingly, what we realized over time is that was in many ways an impediment to inclusion because that funnel, as you described, of, you know, people who've been founders and CEOs who now want to go into VC is not a very diverse funnel. What we decided about 18 months ago was that the real criteria was not, were you a founder or a a CEO, but was, are you maximally attractive to the very best entrepreneurs in the domain that you're trying to cover, right? So what is it that makes you attractive and why would people seek you out? And so we said, look, you can evidence that in many ways. One way would be you could be a founder or CEO, but you could also just be a subject matter expert. Like Connie Chan, for example, in our team is a subject matter expert on China and how kind of U.S. companies can kind of leverage business development opportunities in China – Uh, that's attractive to lots of entrepreneurs. And so, you know, we promoted her internally into that role as a result because we felt like there's great opportunities to do that. Katie Hahn, who does crypto for us, an incredible expert on regulatory issues. And so... That kind of you know uh, changing of the definition to actually go after what we were looking for as opposed to using a proxy at least helped us make some uh, progress on inclusion.
0: Towards the end of the book, you have <laughs> I, I you I swear to God I'm not making this up. You have a little section of the book called "The World is Flat," and you say the world is undeniably flat, and I was um, quite surprised at that you because agree like, with that I, don't, I, don't, I don't I don't th- I don't know Thomas Friedman I, would I th- disagree. I thought you. it was spherical, but um, no, um, <laughs> so what do you mean by that? Because again, like it seems to me that Assuming you're not talking literally here, you're you're saying that like the opportunities to you know white men in Silicon Valley are the same as they are to like non-white yeah. non-men in non-Silicon Valley, and that just doesn't see, this seems to be false on its face.
1: Yeah. So okay, that's that's not what I meant with the comment. So what what I did mean is though that capital is free flowing, and I believe talent is free flowing. And what I mean by that is there are incredibly smart engineers with lots of great ideas that are here in New York and in San Francisco and also in other places in the U.S. Uh, in the world. But the reality is exactly what you described, which is the prevalence of entrepreneurship, the prevalence of venture capital is not evenly distributed across either geographic diversity or, you know, uh, gender diversity and certainly not ethnic diversity. But I think those conditions, the conditions exist in those areas. And part of, I think, what we have to do, and look, a book's not going to solve the problem, but part of the idea of demystifying the venture capital business is can we encourage entrepreneurship to flourish in areas where it hasn't? either because of explicit bias reasons or quite frankly just because of implicit bias reasons and or local network effects that make it harder for that to go. So I personally would like to see a world in which we have lots of other, you know, Silicon Valley like areas. It will take time and people forget. Look, Silicon Valley has at least 70 years worth of building a network effect, which is powerful. It takes a long time. So,
0: I mean, now you seem to be contradicting yourself. A minute ago you were saying it's undeniably flat and now you're saying well silicon valley has a 70 year head start on everyone else and like it has a huge amount of advantages which kind of implies that it's not flat and silicon valley has all these advantages
1: yeah no no no. look i think There's no question. So Silicon Valley has advantages of having built up a network effect over time. And that means now it's got money there. It's got repeat entrepreneurs. It's got engineers. It's got lawyers. It's got all the people to service ecosystem. But uh, my point is that whereas, quite frankly, when we started this business in the early 1970s, not we, but the proverbial we started the venture capital business, there was no way given kind of distribution of income, given availability of technology, availability of funding that you could have imagined you know quite frankly silicon valley is in multiple pockets of the world. Today to me I think that's much more imaginable today and we see it, right? So
0: so the world is
1: imaginably flat. Well, it's even actually flat in some respects. So let me give you one number which, you know, you can uh, attack me on once I say it. <laughs> uh, so 20 years ago, 90% of global venture dollars were in the US. Today that number is about 50%, okay? And so I- at least now the pie has gotten a lot bigger and so uh, nominal dollars have grown so the US, you know, nobody should cry for the US. The US has done a fine job. But you know, that was not the way the industry was f- until very recently, Like right? For a long time, the dollars were very, very concentrated in the U.S. They obviously have been and still, you know, there's still a lot of concentration in California, New York, Boston, but we've seen places like L.A. grow. We've seen places like Seattle grow. And, you know, I think there's no reason why those conditions can't exist in other places. And part of, I think, look, I think part of our responsibility uh, as an industry is to help that flourish in other areas. And I think the conditions for that actually, actually exist and the potential for that actually exists Thus, my comment about the world is flat. Did so, I, so where are you? the
0: where are the Anderson Horowitz offices now? Yeah, so
1: apparently. we are uh, much more parochial in terms of our offices. So, we have an office in Sand Hill. We're actually about to op- open an office in San Francisco. Which, oh, all the way fifty miles yes, away exactly, in San Francisco! Right. Wow, only only twenty miles away actually. So, even <laughs> even twenty shorter, miles away. Yes, exactly. So, what we have said, and we've said this publicly, and I'll say it again: our decision right now to not beat other geographies is purely a practical decision which is we still feel like we're a relatively young firm, even at 10 years old, which we are this month. And we've got, as you mentioned, we have, you said we have billions of people, we don't have billions of people, we have 170 people, but we do have a different model, which is we have a very heavy investment on post-investment teams to work with our portfolio companies. And so- Number one, we feel like we want to perfect that model and make sure, you know, it's working to its highest degree before we think about geographic expansion. And to expand geographically also is a big heavy lift for us because we wouldn't just want to drop a general partner into China or India or Europe or Israel or anywhere else in the States. We would need to think about, okay, how do we support that general partner or general partners with kind of this post-investment team and so, just from a quite frankly a complexity and economic perspective, it will take time for us to do that. But that's why today, at least, we are very Silicon Valley focused.
0: And how hey, you dodged the Brexit bullet?
1: <laughs> exactly right. We were prescient enough to not have to uh, deal with that. <laughs> you right. didn't. And, we, open and the, we dodged an anti-China, in the, the anti-China trade bullet too. So yeah, we look, we look brilliant, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. By, uh, sheer luck.
0: Hello, I'm Emmy Harper. On the slow news cars from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was
1: silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people camping here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people at me. I got this and that. But I'm safe.
0: And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's rebel billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Let me talk about a big theme you have running in this book, which is this whole thing of preferred stock. Yeah. And venture capitalists get preferred stock and it's preferred and it, there's a whole bunch of trickle down effects that come from the fact that when you invest in a company the kind of stock you have is importantly different from the kind of stock that everyone else has. Mm-hmm. And I guess maybe as you say back in the 1970s when there wasn't a lot of capital and VCs could dictate the terms They had that kind of negotiating power to say, no, I want a whole bunch of voting rights and preferred stock and ratchets and whatnot and liquidation preferences. And now that capital is abundant, it seems that you are still getting preferred stock. So how is that and why why is it so important or how do you even manage to still get this? It seems like an amazing thing that you can get when no one else can get it. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, so I'm going to get the violin out now because I know everybody's going to cry for the VCs here when I give you this answer. So the truth of the matter is, yes, we still have preferred stock, but we have seen shifts in terms of kind of the relationship between VCs and entrepreneurs personally, I think in a very positive way, in the in the, that didn't exist in the 1970s. So probably the biggest one is board governance. And I talk about this a little bit in the in the company, right? yeah. in the book, you know, it used to be right that, you know, the VCs control the board. And therefore, you know, as we talked about the ability to hire or fire a fire CEO was really kind of often the cabal of VCs could often do that kind of counter to what the entrepreneurs wanted. That has completely shifted, right? I don't know if it's 100% of companies, but a vast majority of companies today have a board that's controlled by uh, by the common shareholders, which changes that. So I don't know whether I can give you a lengthy defense of preferred stock other than to say I think there is movement. It's still the case, at least the convention, even among the entrepreneurial community, is this idea that, OK, if I give you money, I ought to have some say at least to be able to protect my basic economic rights. right? So, for example, if I've negotiated for a liquidation preference and you decide as an entrepreneur you don't like that anymore, you want to take it away, I ought to have the ability to kind of you know vote among the people who have that liquidation preference to either right, keep it like- or give it up
0: you know common stockholders don't have liquidation preferences and you know there's no liquidation preferences in the public markets like why right, do these yeah. things still exist is preferred stock itself not something of an anachronism at this
1: point it's a fair question um i think it's really just i think They're all tied together, and it's, again, part of the point i try to make in the book is, look, all these issues are tied together ultimately in one question, which is valuation, right? What I mean by that is, look, preferred stock with a liquidation preference has some implicit value attached to it. So if you offered me common stock instead of preferred stock, arguably I should pay less for that, right, because I don't have liquidation preference or I don't have special voting rights and things of that sort. So I guess it's a really good uh, intellectual exercise, which is I can imagine a world where we said – Let's all let's all just have common shares together and get rid of all these other things. I think what that would result in is obviously valuations would also be adjusted to reflect at least. There might be fewer unicorns. That's right, I know. That would be (laughs) that would be a bad outcome, right? We'd all we'd all be in trouble.
0: I I had a question about this though, because often in later rounds, you know, so it's like CD or whatever, you often find that the founders start selling some of their own stock as part of the deal they don't have preferred right so if That's you're correct. a vc entering that round you wind up with the common or am i do i have that wrong you
1: can right so there's there's a couple ways that sometimes these founder sales happen so yes one would be you've got common shares you sell them to me sometimes you know we will we often sometimes try to reflect that in the price so it's not always the case that those common shares will be sold at the exact same price of the preferred they might be some discount to reflect the fact that hey you've got different sh- different privileges and rights associated with it the other way sometimes, though, these happen is the company instead will say, hey, look, we're going to raise a normal venture round. So we're going to sell preferred stock for $100 million or whatever to, you know, you as an investor. The company will take that cash, and the company will then make the buyback themselves. So it's just like a public company doing a stock buyback. So they will uh, say, okay. hey, we, we gave you preferred shares, and I'm going to now take the proceeds of those preferred shares and buy back, you know, kind of the common stock. And so you effectively are taking the stock out of circulation at that point in time. So there are two ways that that can happen, and that's, those are the, typically the two we see.
0: But when you buy stock from,
1: if we buy stock directly from a founder, right? If you in buy almost all cases, it's going yeah, to be common. It's going to be common, and
0: I believe that you did that with Twitter, right? Is you bought a bunch of stock from like employees? We bought, yeah.
1: So Twitter and Facebook, you know, we were unfortunately late as a venture firm in the sense that we didn't exist in the kind of traditional venture rounds there. But in 2010, I believe it was, yeah, we. We felt like, you know, the secondary market still, we thought there was still an opportunity to make money, you know, a significant amount of money on secondary shares with the eventuality they would go public. So, yeah. So, in those cases, we basically did exactly that. We bought, you know, common shares that were from either employees or in some cases there were some preferred shares from existing investors, by the way, who sold.
0: You talk a lot about, like, you wind up with tensions if you're if you're, uh, if you're on the board and you have preferred stock. And the, especially if you're on the board, like, you, you wind up worrying that, on the one hand, as a board member, you have certain obligations Mm -hmm. to common shareholders, and on the other hand, you have obligations to your own LPs, and and you have your own self-interest as a preferred shareholder, and those tension that they can diverge in important ways. Yeah. So there are certain things which you just have to do under Delaware law right. if you're right. if you're a director of a company which you, you have to care about the common to some extent. But you do say a, at the end of the book, whereas this is in here, you you say that good VCs appropriately balance their duties to the common shareholders with those they owe to their limited partners. Beyond what you actually sort of affirmatively have to do under Delaware law. What yeah. kind of duties do you have to common shareholders?
1: Look, I think we have a lot of duties to common shareholders. So where this mostly comes into play, unfortunately, is in kind of, you know, bad or mediocre outcomes, right? So you can imagine scenarios where there's $100 million of liquidation preference on the company that the VCs hold, and maybe we're talking about selling the company for $100 million or somewhere around there. And so, our obligation there is we are always obligated to get the best possible price for the company. The job of the board member is to maximize shareholder value. And shareholder, in that case, means common shareholder, not preferred shareholder. And so, that means you know we need to shop the company we need to hire experts to help us do that we need to make sure that we are you know considering maybe we should carve back the liquidation preference a little bit and create you know kind of a pool of money that could go to the common shareholders all those things are things from a process perspective that we need to do and think about in the good scenario right it's, it's easy right Well, look when the company goes public you know you don't have to worry about any of those things it's all perfect but it's always in these kind of corner scenarios where you've got to be careful to recognize that look we do owe fiduciary duties to the common shareholders we also as you mentioned we we owe duties to our LPs as well but because you know with our I think we have reasonable degrees of freedom there with our LPS because we need to think about the what's in the long-term best interest of the LPS whereas in the instant we're dealing with a company you have to think about kind of what is in this instance the best thing that creates the best possible outcome for the common shareholders and so I think you have an ability to balance those things quite effectively
0: so you have this whole and this is the real Wonkish heart of the book is you You walk people through a term sheet and you explain yes. what all of the terms mean. And it's very uh, useful, kind of translation of legalese into English. And there's this whole bit here where you, which I have right in front of me, I can literally hear all the listeners to this podcast turning off. But like, honestly, it's more interesting <laughs> than it sounds protective provisions in term yes. sheets and you're like this is these are all perfectly reasonable you're like they should get to vote on new class issuance if it has blah blah right, blah right, and right, they yeah. should have a say in the sale of intellectual property and they should have a say in um
1: you're, you're recapitalizations, your is, is very dramatic, it,
0: and, by the way. and they should be able to weigh in on the decision to increase the option pool. And I was reading this, and it's like, get to vote and have a say and be able to weigh in. Right. And then I was looking at the language. I'm like, no, none of this is get to vote and have a say and be able to. This is actual veto power that you're giving yourself here. This is like the preferred has to agree to this. Otherwise, it does not happen.
1: It can be that way. I mean, and, there's lots and, of flavors. But and in, be, the,
0: yeah. in the sort of yeah. term sheet that you have in the book, yeah. the sort of stylized term sheet yeah. that you have in the book, you know you have one VC representing maybe a 10% investment in the company who has veto power over all of these different matters. And there's quite a long list of matters that the VC has veto power over. And explain to me why it's fair that a 10% investor should be able to veto all of these things.
1: Yeah, so uh, it's probably not likely that a 10% person over time will be able to veto these things, right? So, and and I talk about this a little bit in the book, which is this is, we talked about, I think it's a series A term sheet, right? So this is kind of first money in. But the way we wrote, or in the way at least we recommend that you write these things, is, look, a majority of all the preferred over time should be able to vote on these things. Now, it happens to be in this case, of course, it's a majority of one in this case, so it doesn't really matter. But over time, as you add more investors, then kind of that 10 percent holder, quite frankly, is just going to get their proportionate share of the preferred holdings represented by their vote, which – Personally, for me, I think that's fair, but, uh, you know, I can understand why others may not, but I think that's reasonable. So I think that's important. I also, since I want to make sure that we are a little bit balanced here, I do also point out, by the way, there are things that I think entrepreneurs, you know, should not do and should not agree to as well. And so I'm, you know, obviously, look, I represent where I come from, but I hope at least you found that I'll be interested as your listeners uh, read the book that we. I tried to be generally balanced in terms of explaining what things are and giving people hopefully the tools to decide do I want to make this trade-off or not.
2: But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the other end of it, which is like the exits. Yeah, you sure. say like this is where a lot of the the real tensions can arise. You say that lemons ripen quickly, that if you do a bad deal, um it, it becomes pretty obvious pretty quickly that it was a bad deal. It, it
1: can certainly. So
0: what happens in that event? Because it seems to me that like if you're in the business of what what do you call it, home runs per at-bat, really <laughs> all you care about is are you gonna be a home run or not? Once it becomes obvious it's a lemon, yeah. can you just sort of like leave them to their own devices and say, like, if you can find a perfectly viable small company right. all power to you but like we're not interested it seems to me that a lot of pe- entrepreneurs i talk to like they seem to go through an enormous amount of pain with their yeah, vcs yeah, yeah, once yeah, yeah. it becomes obvious that from a vc's perspective they're a lemon yeah they might so uh,
1: i don't know if we made up this quote or we stole it from somebody but we use it off internally which is look we make our investment returns on successful businesses and we make our reputation on unsuccessful businesses is the basically what we think about it and so Yes, like you cannot, you cannot just walk away and abandon folks when that happens. You know, I think even if they want you to. (laughs) Well, but that's that's what I was going to go to, which is I think that, I think that that is the conversation to have, right? So if things aren't going well, right, it's any number of reasons, right? Either you know the product's not there, or the market's not there, or maybe the CEO isn't into it anymore. And interestingly enough, more often than not, I've had this conversation with a CEO where. They feel like they are kind of running on this treadmill because they think we want them to keep running on the treadmill, even though I think we both know and agree that, look, the business just isn't going to be what we all hoped it would be. And oftentimes, you know, you go into those conversations with a little bit of anxiety and trepidation because, you know, I'm kind of saying, look, your baby's ugly to a certain extent. Right. But it's often the case that we actually see things eye to eye, which is, as I said, a lot of times I come to those conversations and the entrepreneur is relieved and they say, oh, I'm so glad that you see it that way. Because I feel the same way, and I'm not sure I want to go spend the next three to five years of my life doing something that I you know, no longer believe can achieve the outcomes we thought it could. So it's not a conversation to be taken lightly, and you can't cut and run on these things, and I think that reputation will, will really hurt you in this business. But I do think it's a conversation that is worth having, which is, okay. look, we're in the situation we're in. The question now is, are we all still committed? And do we want to kind of double down and maybe, you know, as I mentioned there, you recapitalize the company and you restructure all the incentives? Or, you know, do we have a common agreement that, hey, look, like, despite our best efforts, this just isn't what we all had hoped it would be. And let's find a rational way to either wind it down or sell it to somebody or do something that kind of is respectful and, you know, kind of preserves relationships.
0: There does seem to be this feeling in the entrepreneurial community that If an investment is looking like it's going to be like a single, you're going to get your money back because you have your liquidation preferences or maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less, the incentive on the VC side of things is always to do what you said, double down, recapitalize, and try and turn into a home run because all you care about is a home run. Even if there's actually a perfectly good business there, it's just not a home run. And it could be a nice, sustainable business, which the CEO could run indefinitely, but the VCs won't let that happen because they would much rather gamble and let it go to zero, but still keep a hope that it might be a home yeah. run.
1: I don't agree with that perception, maybe not surprisingly. And I think, you know, we we talk about this in the book. To me, you should keep going if you as the entrepreneur believe and the VCs also believe that, look, there is a real viable business here. Now, I do think, to your point, if we're going to do it, we got to recognize the mistakes we've made and we got to go figure out how to fix it, right? It would be silly to like keep going when we've got hundreds of million dollars of liquidation preferences overhanging the company and there's no reasonable prospect ever in the near term that you're going to see anything like that. And so that's where, you know, these painful conversations like, look, let's kind of effectively think of a recap as it's really a restart for the economic incentives for people. And so if the entrepreneurs sign up to do that, and the VCs are signed up to it. Look, I think that's a perfectly happy marriage, and people should do that. I think the problem is where you don't have alignment on those issues. And my personal, it's an obligation of VC to kind of continuously fund something, kind of ad infinitum. But I think it is the obligation to have that conversation with the entrepreneur and say, "Look, are we? Do we still believe this can be something interesting? And if so, let's I mean, well, when you say restart. interesting,
0: that's like code for like you know a big billion dollar massive exit, which we can make into a home run. I guess what yeah. I'm saying is that sometimes. You launch with great hopes, and then it turns into a sort of yeah. perfectly decent middling-sized company, and that's just a big disappointment to you, and you don't want that, and you are willing to risk a lot, that basically the life of the company, in yeah. order to turn it into not yeah, so I, I, yeah,
1: I mean, I, I hear your comment. I hear that perception. I, I I don't agree. At least that's certainly not how, it's not how we want or we intend to run our business. And because, what about the
0: other yeah, way around? Yeah. Where, I mean, you, you mentioned, like, Mike Moritz earlier, when the VC is actually more risk-averse than the entrepreneur. And he's like saying, you know, okay, Zappos, you need to sell to Amazon even though you want to stay independent.
1: I don't think that's the right way to run the business either. So at the end of the day, we, you know, these businesses, the entrepreneurs run this business. They know what's happening. Our job, and I think our obligation is, look, we should use our power of persuasion where appropriate or try to be a sounding board for things. But look, you can't sell a company if the entrepreneur doesn't want to sell it, and you can't take a company public if they don't want to sell it. You can't shut it down if they don't want to sell it either, right, so, or, or shut it down. So I still think you got to remember at the end of the day, certainly in our firm, we have a tremendous amount of respect for the entrepreneurial process, and we also therefore recognize that there are boundaries to what we can do and what we can, you know, how we engage in these companies. And I agree with you. I don't think that's a appropriate thing. I think it's appropriate to have the discussion and say, okay, look – Here's why I think you should sell the company. I don't believe in the business anymore, or the market's not where it was, or you're not executing it properly. I think that's a perfectly fair discussion. But I think to try to kind of force somebody to sell something, it doesn't work anyways, right? Which is as you see from reading the book, now that you're, you know, fully versed in all these things, we can't force it anyways because we don't control the votes, right? So we could control maybe the preferred votes, but you know, to sell a company, the common shareholders have to vote as well. And that means the entrepreneur and the and the you know founders are often in control of that. So at some point in time, you have to have a meeting in the minds on these things, or else you're just stalemated on the business.
0: Let me just ask about the IPOs, because we we have a whole bunch of IPOs happening yeah. right now. You make the point in the book that, you know, say, like, Microsoft IPO very early and a $350 million right. valuation, and there was massive returns to public shareholders there, which I guess implicitly were returns which could have been VC returns yeah. if yeah. it had only stayed private for longer. Yeah. I think... With hindsight, it was really good for a lot of people that it did go public earlier. And it was good for Microsoft that it went public earlier. But is it not the case that, for successful companies, VCs really do have an uh, incentive to keep them private as long as possible to maximize their return.
1: So, yes, I think from a purely selfish VC perspective, right, if value keeps accruing, yes, we're way better off than that. I will tell you personally as a firm, and we've talked about this publicly and I've been involved with the DC community on this, I think it's terrible from a policy perspective, right? I think exactly what you described as Microsoft is the way things should work. I don't know if it's $350 million, but We ought to have a smaller cap IPO market that benefits traditional public retail investors. And I think it's a huge problem for our country. And again, even though it's against my own personal self-interest to do that, I would much rather be in that kind of market.
0: So the way to do that is very common, right? So you don't you don't have a veto on like whether it's IPOs no, or not. Well,
1: no, but that's not the – look, I can tell you 100%. Look, the VCs are not holding up companies from going public. I assure you that. Uh, okay. So we are encouraging our companies. I can say certainly for Andreessen and Horowitz, we encourage our companies to go public as soon as we think they are actually ready to go public. I've never once had a conversation the other way with an entrepreneur where we are, you know, preventing them from going public when they want to go public. So I don't think that's – the common may solve other problems. I don't think it solves that problem. Okay, Scott Cooper, thank you very much for coming in to Slate Money. I appreciate you having me, thanks.